Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our author events at www.skylightbooks.com. At our website, you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. And don't be afraid to follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, tonight, we're so happy to be having this panel. Uh, actually, I've been looking forward to hearing what they have to say about this particular form. Um, so for those of you who don't know, this is Ben Schwartz right here. He is, yes, yes, the editor extraordinaire. Um, he's also uh, a staple of this bookstore and the LA literary scene, so we're always very, very happy to have him here, and he'll be moderating the panel. Um, and then we have uh, Brian Doherty. Brian is a senior editor at Reason Magazine and author of the books This is Burning Man, Radicals for Capitalism, a freewheeling history of the modern American libertarian movement, and Gun Control on Trial. He lives in LA and has been a devoted friend of comics since 1975. Yes. Yes, give him some. That's great. Um, Robert or Bob Fiore has written the Funny Book Roulette column for the Comics Journal since sometime during the Carter administration. That's what he wrote here, the comic, the Carter administration. This is the only thing of consequence Bob has ever done. If this is of no consequence, then Bob Fiore has never done anything of consequence. <laughs> like a lot of people, he lives in Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be a fun group, you can tell. <laughs> yes, yes. Sammy Harkin was born in 1980. Really? <laughs> he was born in 1980 in Los Angeles. He is the editor of Kramer's Urgot, the latest volume of which was published by Buenaventura Press, a terrific press, and we have lots of their books, by the way. Most recently, he guest edited The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror, number 15, published by Bongo Comics, and is working on his solo comic book, Crickets, number three. That's Mr. Sammy. We're also very happy to have uh, Joe Matt, a practitioner of this form. Uh, we have his books right up front, and um, we're always happy to see him here, and uh, he's loads of fun. So ladies and gentlemen, that's Joe Matt. <laughs> now I know you don't want to hear from me, so I'm going to pass this over to Mr. Ben. Thank you very much, Noel. Brian and I are going to be splitting this one. Well, um, I pitched this book to Fanagraphics uh, editor Gary Groff, who's uh, been writing comics criticism and founded the Comics Journal in the mid-70s and is uh, probably the most pugnacious writer on comics, I would say, of anybody I can think of. And uh, I said, What's, what about it? Like one of these, you, we see these best American sports, you know, writing books or best short stories. How about one of a best comics criticism? And this is the guy who's been publishing the comics journal since I think like 75 or 6, somewhere in there. And he emailed back, do you really think you could fill up a whole book with good comics criticism? And he sent me along his essay, The Death of Criticism, to encourage me. But... <laughs> 
Um, he and Kim Thompson, his partner there, and Eric Reynolds, who's sort of, I guess, the... the uh, he's now a partner, partner publisher. They, uh, they got behind it because one thing that's going on with comics criticism at this point in, in uh, this book covers 2000 to 2010 or 2008 but um, the New York Times book forum uh, the New York Review of Books the LA Times the Washington Post uh, Brian's own Reason magazine and um, the New Yorker and any number of publications publish comics criticism all the time. Um, some of them don't publish film criticism, but they'll publish reviews of comics. Um, and uh, so it came, to, I, I, I just thought this period too uh, is one I really wanted to cover in this book because the what some people call the graphic novel, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, they call it a novel. They'll call Mao as a graphic novel. Um, in this period, uh, comics have become treated as literature. Um, <clears throat> one of our contributors, Rick Moody, said that uh, with the release of Chris Ware's Jimmy Corrigan and on the same day Dan Clow's David Boring, uh, comics became unavoidable in literary circles. And when that happens, uh, they became unavoidable in, uh, with literary critics. They become unavoidable throughout the publishing industry because I think Jimmy Corrigan sold something like 100,000 copies or something like that. And when that happens, not only do they want to publish more comics, not only do they want to uh, find new artists or revive classics because people will buy them, but they'll spend real money on uh, biographies, like the biography of Charles Schultz that Knopf put out. Um, uh, Gary Groff published, meanwhile, a biography of Milton Kniff. Um, and there, uh, Doug Wilkes reading comics. They're finding homes with major publishers. So the culture of it and uh, what these guys have been writing and uh, drawing about all these years has become the real mainstream of comics. And uh, I'm going to start talking to the guys in a second instead of monopolizing this. But uh, the analogy I make in the introduction is this period reminds me a lot of filmmaking in the late 60s and 70s when people are discovering all these great new filmmakers they were they were sort of redefining what a great american movie was suddenly um even though everybody had always really liked movies like the big sleep and to have and have not now they were showing in art houses and people were redefining what a great movie was they there were magazines devoted to movies uh, pauline kale in the new yorker was probably the most read I would guess the most read writer in the magazine in the 70s. Uh, film culture was hot and people were publishing biographies of, gosh, you know, B actors and B-list directors, formerly B-list, who are now being reappraised. And that was, that's what I think is going on in comics now. Um, so uh, of the people we have here tonight, it was, I'm glad that we have actually the writer whose piece appears first in the book, Brian Doherty, because in 2000, when Jimmy Corrigan and when David Boring came out, he wrote this great piece on um, the you know that these books were great, but Brian didn't really see that the literary comic could possibly overtake in the public's imagination the superhero in comics. And I, I would think now they have. Now you see cartoonists like Ware and David uh, Klaus. Hmm? Well, it's debatable. We can debate it. 
Um, that's why we're, that's what we do. Uh, <laughs> but I would say, as far as comics go, yeah. As far as movies go, I mean, uh, the superhero is the biggest thing in movies now. Um, but it's not the most interesting thing in comics. And I was going to say, Brian wrote that first piece, and then the last interview is a conversation between Sammy and another publisher, Dan Nadel, uh, who's from New York. Uh, pic uh, his pu publishing house is called Picture Box. And they were, do they were talking about how they published their uh, art comics be uh, on their own, because with literary comics taking such precedence, they didn't really think any publisher would be interested in something that was non-literary. So it's that period from where Brian's saying, this is interesting, but how far can it go, to Sammy and Dan saying, we had to publish ourselves, we had to start over the way Gary Groth did 30 years ago, basically, because we didn't see a market for what we were doing. So it's that period I really wanted to cover with the book. Um, and uh, I know uh, Joe is a topic in the book too. Joe's not actually a contributor to the book, but he's one of the subjects because um, when Rick Moody wrote that comics had become uh, unavoidable in literary circles, Joe was one of the people he talked about because he said Joe is uh, one of the cartoonists capable of starting sort of a, a near fist fight among fans and sort of critical foes because his work divided people so much. He, he listed some other artists who have now all sort of become like Chris Ware and some others uh, uh, Joe is a contemporary of. But Joe today is still, I think, the most debated cartoonist in America. And uh, so I published the Amazon customer reviews of Joe's uh, because I, I felt no one critic is going to sum up what there is to love and hate about Joe's work. Um, not that I find anything, me, Brian, I speak for us, we don't hate anything, Joe. Um, but uh, I wanted to read this before we get into the conversation with the guys. This is on Vice Magazine today. It's the first, uh, one of the first reviews we've gotten. And uh, Vice is, of course, the hipster snarky, you know. Now that the review's out, I can call them snarky, hipster. Um, Nick Gavin? Gavos? Gazin. Okay. And he, he liked it. Uh, his name's not on the sheet that I'm reading from. That's why I don't remember. But uh, and he even he, you might guess that this book is a snoozer. But if that's the case, you're a presumptuous loser. <laughs> so obviously influenced by Muhammad Ali and his critical take. But um, I shouldn't I shouldn't make fun of this guy. But his reviews, he can take it back. But but Joe, I wanted to read this to you because. Uh, this writer is one of the anonymous posters who advised Joe to quit doing comics. Now, other people in the book call him a genius, I want to say. This guy said, quit drawing comics, Joe Matt. And so he was very surprised to see his work in the book because I, I had no idea who it was. He says that he had... Um, he says, and the next thing I knew, I was reading my own words that I'd written myself. For some reason, they included all the Amazon user reviews for Joe Matt's book, Spent, and my maybe slightly too harsh review of it. But he wanted you to quit drawing comics. He was more negative. Negative story. This, he, this guy wanted you to quit drawing comics. Here, I'll finish. He says, um, and my maybe slightly too harsh review of it was right there, although I was signed in as my mom at that time, <laughs> that I'd written it. So this guy's mom is not the problem, it's this guy. If you get the book, I wrote the final review titled, Joe Matt, Please Stop Making Comics. I'm not sure if it... 
Oh, he gave you one? Yeah. This is your one, sir? No, he's taking it back, sort of. He's going to give you two. Here, look at I'm not sure if they put mine last because they were making fun of me. Thought I was funny, or what? Fuck it. Tom Sharpling said something about how the internet's pretty much just people saying, that thing, I don't like it, to each other, and I stand by that. <laughs> so, Joe, we've made the world a better place with this book, because this guy has kind of taken his review back a little bit. And the book is a little obsolete because of that. But, anyway. Um, so, this is, I, I wanted to start uh, actually asking you all this question, because Sammy and Joe and I, uh, when I asked them to do the panel, they're the two cartoonists here. Um, and as critics, I think I can say Bob, Brian, and I, we're not used to being spoken back to, you know. Um, but both Sammy and Joe, when I asked them to be here, kind of had the same question. It was like, you know, what, what do we need critics for in a way? What, what's a good critic? Well, that was specifically Joe's. Like, why do I need critics? He said, when a book comes out, I know what I want. Um, but I did want to, uh, everybody knows what a critic is, a movie critic, a book critic, but uh, I wanted to start with you two, who have been the subject of critics, and, and say to you what you think a good critic is, and when they're necessary or not, and uh, when they're, what, what is a waste of time kind of critic? I start? is what makes a good critic or do I even consider criticism a worthy thing or what's the um, st either, either one of those because I know Joe is sort of saying what do we need I, them I for read a, I read a lot of criticism really? personally no well, I mean there isn't that much criticism in comics to keep you busy as far as good writing in comics you know um, but I realized recently that the writing in the comics journal when I started reading it when I was 14 was you know it formed me as a cartoonist as much as comics did you know and I read a lot of I read a lot of other criticism and I'm interested in that but I don't read criticism to see if I'm gonna buy a book you know or not buy a book or if something's good or something's bad um, you know I mean I think it's useful in the sense that it's an art form in the same way any other writing is right Bob you know no <laughs> is it on okay um, I, I don't know. I just I. It's it just seems like such a huge uh, question or whatever. But I think it definitely has a place. The thing that I realized after spending about a year of only reading criticism, like that was the only stuff I was reading, was criticism basically. And you get to a point, especially when, let's say, there's a piece of art that you really connect with. You'll read someone's take on it, and you realize like, whoa, like the way this person. You, you especially feel it with something you really love because it's like you'll read it and you'll be like, wow, this person is having a completely different experience with this piece of work that I had. And you realize like from reading how they took in that art, you're like, whoa, like I would never want to have a beer with this person. I would never want to get stuck talking to them like ever. You know, and then, and then you sort of like that line of thinking sort of spreads out and you're like, wow, all this criticism, it's written by a lot of goofballs. You know, but you know, if you're interested in that medium, then, you know, you sort of pick the few writers, the few film writers, the few literary guys, I mean, whatever. I mean, I feel like it's like saying, do you like, you know, fiction? 
or something. Mm-hmm. You know, a good writer is a good writer. Um, but I don't use criticism as a thing to like um, see if something's worthwhile. I just am interested in smart people talking about something, whether they hate it or like it. You know, um, like I'm thinking of like Richard Brody at the New Yorker. You know, I mean, he dislikes things that I love or whatever, but he's such a smart person and he's got such an interesting take on things that it's always good reading. You so know? you don't you don't feel you have to agree with the person like thumbs up, thumbs down. Oh no, it's fine. I mean, I mean that's even the thing with like. Bob, you're dying to say no, something. No, no, no. Okay. Um, so vocalizing how <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, it's weird to put it into words because how often do we talk about criticism? I mean, I guess critics probably sit around and talk about it. Maybe you guys have your own message boards and stuff. <laughs> but I don't know. <laughs> but they, uh, like their secret, like a secret yeah, email you know. society. But I mean, I don't have anything. I know some cartoonists are really averse to like negative criticism. They don't understand why a critic would write about something if they don't love it. You know, and the idea of, a, of critics being parasites, I think, is really interesting because they're, they're artists in their own way, obviously. But, but <laughs> I'm not saying I hold by this. I'm just saying, you know, I've heard other people say this, that, you know, like they can only make their work by other people making work, you know. Um, and as far as like bad, like, you know, where I've gotten bad reviews or whatever, I'm pretty much fine with it, you know. Because I feel like I don't I don't feel like anyone really makes work that's for everybody, you know what I mean. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't get wound up about stuff like that personally. Okay, but um, I wish I could have just spoken out loud what I was thinking because it's it, all my thoughts come and go. But um, <laughs> when it comes to criticism, I, I don't really seek it out. I don't. I don't buy the comics journal and read the articles. If I borrow the comics journal, I go right to an interview. I want to read interviews with cartoonists before anything. Um, if there was an article by Art Spiegelman, you know, about something, that would be the first kind of review I would read or criticism. Um, but I, you know, as I was saying earlier um, yesterday, there's so many comics and comic strips out there that I don't. I don't feel like I have enough time to read all, everything I want to read. You know, let alone the criticisms or reviews of things. So I tend to not gravitate towards that stuff. I just want to read the strips. If I get a hold of um, Little Orphan Annie, Volume Five, like yesterday, I'll start in reading the book, and I may never get around to reading. You know, Jeet here's great introduction. Oh wow! But I might, maybe years later, I will, but not initially, um, because I value. You know, in my mind, I'm like, it, it's you know, it's like the main course. I want the main course first. Um, have your salad at the end. Yeah, but you were mentioning criticism as an art form. I'm not. Um, I'm not sure. Did you did you agree with this? Are we calling criticism an art form or not? I don't know, but it's it's sort of like unlike comics. I can when I see comics I like, I know initially just visually what grabs me and what doesn't, and um, I don't you know word of mouth or something might lead me to a book more than a review or something but I just know visually what I'm going to buy or not buy mm-hmm. and um, uh, I don't know as, as a cartoonist like with you know I, I do I always put my maximum effort into my work because I always feel like I'm working for posterity and I want this book to stay in print for a hundred years whereas with reviews and stuff I'm not sure it's less clear how much effort went into writing um, unless you're unless you know the author 
Um, it might have been written in 10 minutes or something, or it may have been taken. It may have taken a week of agonizing. Um, but I can't see that. I can't see that visually. So I, I gravitate towards visual stuff. Um, uh, what else to say? What about not about the? But for, how about we drop the idea of like looking at a piece of criticism as a guide to something you should either buy or avoid? Right. But just as far as like, like reading a piece of Jeet's writing, Jeet here, a writer in Canada, who writes a lot about stuff you're interested yeah. in. You know, like don't you enjoy reading? I, his, I do, like but his you know, analysis of a good, a good comic. Story? I I, I reread. I just reread his uh, inter, his introduction to Walensky's X Volume One. Mm -hmm. um, but I was reading that more to like prime my prime the pump of my appetite for the strip, because um, I because everything he's he's not telling me anything I don't already know and love about the strip. Um, it just makes me hungry for the strip. Right. Um, and and even when if if I was asked to write an introduction or anything about Gasoline Alley or anything that I love or want to criticize, I sort of feel like I I don't. Uh, I don't feel like I'd ever be up to that task because mm -hmm. I don't I don't really know how to say put into words why I love something. It's easier to say why I hate something. Like the last episode of Lost, I watched that last episode of Lost, and like within minutes I was on Facebook rewriting the whole episode, <laughs> and then uh, and I had a great ending. It was I you know much better ending. Uh, they, and, the ten they had didn't really. And, and, but, well, Brian and Brian and I started messaging back and forth about okay, what, no spoilers now. what questions were unanswered and blah blah blah, but. But I didn't want to. I didn't want to go online and start reading reviews of Lost. You know, I didn't want to read other people's criticism. I knew what I thought of it, and I don't know. Okay. I shouldn't even be here. I, I just. I have nothing. To, <laughs> I have nothing else to do tonight. You know, I was. I'd be at home. But okay. Bob, did you want to add to that? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think criticism exists primarily because we like to read about. The things we read or look at or watch. I mean, I, I don't really think of, I never thought of, I don't really think of criticism as any kind of dialogue between a critic and an artist. I mean, I don't. Uh, I mean, I think yeah. I, I just assume the artist, the, the person I'm writing about, not read what I've written. I mean, because it's, it's, it's just only gonna only inhibiting. I mean, I see a basic uh, the basic. Uh, Oh, conflict I see between artists and critics is that a critic can set his standards as high as he likes. An artist is like nailed like Jesus to what he's capable of doing. That's true. Yeah, that's, I think a lot of people have been you know you're ruined by trying to do something things that are like more prestigious than what they can do. It's true. It's, a, it's a really sad day. The day you realize like <laughs> wow that strip that I've always wanted to do I actually don't have that skill set. Maybe you've never had that day, but yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. See, uh, Brian, did you want to add to that one or? Uh, not to this particular point. Though. Okay. Well, Sammy, you said something like the basic kind of thing, kind of contradiction too. Is like you said you'd been formed as a cartoonist in a way by the critics of the comics journal at one point, and well, now it's a terrible magazine. Okay, but. But yeah, once upon a time, sure. Okay, and then and yet at the same time, you're kind of looking at some of these people going, ah, I never want to be in a room with them because they force you to think whether or not you. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it's like you when you're 15 years old, and you read, you know, I don't know, you read, uh, you know, Ghost World or something, and you're like, wow, that was amazing. And then let's say you read, um, I'm trying to think of a of a good writer, maybe Dan Nadell or 
you know, or Bob, you know, or someone writing about this thing, it's like, you know, they, they can make you appreciate it more and you can sort of expand on it. You know what I mean? And it's, it's exciting because you start seeing it opens it up. So when I was really getting excited about comics, also the journal was exposing me to like all this work. You know, as someone, I was living in Australia at the time, and I was just starting to get into alternative comics. And it was like, you know, you pick up an issue of the Comics Journal, and there was like, this is the internet was around, but I, I guess I wasn't using it that much. And it's like, it's a whole world. So that it would also serve that purpose. I had the same experience with the Comics Journal because when I started reading it, all I wanted to read were superhero comics, and then I would. Uh, read Gary Groth's reviews of them, and he hated them. And I was like, what is wrong with this guy? Right. But um, I, I did an interview on the Comics Reporter about uh, the book, and I, I knew that by the time I got out of college, I was, you know, I was writing articles about Carl Barks, uh, Drew Friedman, right. Peter Bag. So obviously, Gary kind of won. And it was but, also also like up or, until or, the, what, the, the the time that your book covers, mm -hmm. the canon of comics of like what was good comics in our like sort of world was easy to contain you know you could sort of be aware of everything that was going on and then after jimmy corrigan and david boring came out and everyone started publishing all this stuff and at the same time on the opposite sort of end you had manga coming up so like kids were now reading a whole lot it was like so it, like the whole thing just became so unwieldy and your whole perception at least my whole perception of like that world of comics and what's considered good and what people are excited about completely shifted mm -hmm. you know just yeah, there are a number of artists like the that you published in Kramer's Ergo, or do you Ergot. pronounce it Ergot? Okay, Kramer's Ergot. Um, or I look at somebody like Dash Shaw, and I look at their books, and I think these people are completely unpredictable to me, mm -hmm. because, like you said, there was a point where you could, you you kind of knew who was important and who wasn't, uh, because you've been told that, and then. All of these other voices have come in who never really paid attention to who was inking Jack Kirby when or who was really into this, you know, this shift in superheroes or anything like that. And people with just a completely different take on this medium. I mean, it's just, just yeah, well, that's the thing. It's disheartening, you know, like in a way it is. Like you see all these terrible books getting published by really big publishers and they've got some hook or something that they're like incredibly like obsessed with like formalism. So writers at regular newspapers and regular mag like non-comics magazines can really latch onto it and be like, oh, this is genius, you know, because they don't read that many comics, but they can see this guy's like playing with the size of the panels and everyone looks like an icon and it's referencing Dick Tracy or whatever, you know, and it's that sort of thing for a long time really bothered me, you know, stuff like that. Um, but I think at a certain point you just sort of be like, just don't read it. You know, it's not it's, if you're not paying attention to it, you're not letting it sort of affect how you look at a medium or a scene or a community of artists or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. You know, but it, yeah, it's weird. Things really shifted after that after those two books came out. Yeah, um, I yeah I could actually really give an even more enthusiastic uh, sort of valorization of criticism um, in a way that's totally dug into believing that being a reader like me and, and being my age is, is, is the optimal thing. Um, I, I have to believe that uh, 
the people who were reading, uh, and I'll name Bob particularly, because he was for years the most consistently intelligent critical voice in the comics journal, which Sammy mentioned. And if you were a comic book kid, a serious comic book kid who didn't just like, I mean, I know there's people out in the world who maybe just like to consume art, and that's what they like to do, and, and they like to make art, but that strikes me as weird. I feel like if you're into this stuff, you're going to want to participate in a conversation about it, whether literally face-to-face, -face, uh, which wasn't really an option for most people if you were a comics fan in the late 70s and 80s, or through uh, uh, magazines. You didn't have the internet to do it then, and that a generation of people uh, that Sammy and I are both part of and Ben is part of that, that got to participate in not just reading intelligent comics as they started to come out more in the 80s, but in to be enmeshed in a world in which intelligent people talked about them intelligently, I think laid the groundwork for the comic, like the talk about it, I think had to have laid the groundwork for the revolution as much maybe not as much as the work itself, but also to a significant degree um, as much as the work did. And I think Bob here is as much of a hero of the modern comics revolution as you know, some of the great artists of the 80s. Um, and you know, and Joe was saying uh, that he, he can figure out what he wants to read just by looking at it. I totally can't. That's absolutely not the way I consume things. I'm never probably going to pick up a comic book or a book and decide I want to buy it just because of my experience with the thing. If I don't have some sense of what it is or where it's coming from, I'm probably not going to buy it. I might look at it and start thinking, oh, this seems like it might be interesting, and then maybe I'll seek out the conversation about it and try to figure it out. Are blurbs helpful? No, they're not enough. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, and and I, I don't think I'm the only person in the world who is that way, that you, you want your mind and your reaction to art to be enmeshed in a larger world of conversation, and that's what criticism is. Whether the criticism is brilliant uh, or not, it's, it's helpful and important in, in building an intelligent audience, and in many cases in building, like I think Sammy's example, this building intelligent artists from that intelligent audience. Did you want to add something, uh, Bob? Um, well, I think uh, there's a difference between there's a difference between uh, comics and like and literature because a printed page, one printed page of a printed page of good writing looks a lot like a printed page of bad writing. I mean, comics you can look at a glance and see if there's something interesting going on. I think. Let me ask. I want to. Brian brought up a good point because um, I said in that comics reporter interview that I, I, I think maybe the most radical publishing venture that Gary Groth and Kim Thompson ever embarked on was the Comics Journal. Who would publish a book, a magazine, just about comics criticism and interviews in the 1970s? Now I know there have been some other attempts at it, but that they would do it and keep it going that long was. You got to remember also that they were they were coming out of like uh, sort of a they were coming out of a fan culture. I was re I was reading an issue from 1980 mm -hmm. yesterday day before, and uh, Gary gets into a whole thing with Roy Thomas, who is an editor and writer at uh, Marvel. He wrote like the Star Wars movie adaptation and stuff. He wrote he wrote Conan the Barbarian and most every Marvel superhero, I think. Right, uh, and, but you know, Gary does mention a whole bunch of magazines, comics, 
like fan press because Roy Thomas goes into this whole thing about how they're all, you know, those who can't do, you know, criticize or whatever it is. Um, and then Gary in his rebuttal to his letter mentions like, no, there's actually good writers in comics and he goes through a whole bunch of magazines I'd never heard of. But, you know, yeah, it's interesting. But, but Fantagraphics is also a publisher of comics, so it's it's self-serving to publish a magazine of... Not in 1980, though. Yeah. Okay, but... To, you know, I got on board like in '85. Like started publishing. The first thing I, you know, I got very excited when I saw the um, Crumbs cover of Harvey Picar at a train station, and and that led me to discover Picar's work. Um, but again, it was the Crumb thing that pulled me in, not anything else. But but I'm just, it's there. There always has been a conflict of interest, though, to me, with Fantagraphics publishing a critical magazine when they have their own books that they're talking about. You know, so. I've always felt that way. Well, it's Fantagraphics. It's it's sort of like it's it's sort of like the uh, local ethnic uh, entrepreneur, you know, who owns the Greek restaurant and the Greek hairdresser. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that I mean, it's uh, in the beginning it was just all the comics journal, and they had this ambition to. Uh, to uh, publish comics eventually, and you know, basically the uh, kind of the comics journal is basically the dog that became the tail. You know, right. so, I mean, there's well, I want to ask the, direct this question to Bob because, uh, as you said, you were started writing criticism sometime in the Carter administration. Sammy was born in 1980, mm -hmm. and um, what I wanted to ask you is because we, Joe, Sammy, Brian, and I have all kind of witnessed this whole literary revolution in comics and we're all I mean we all love it we're all inspired by it but I wanted to ask you as someone who is reading comics before that mm -hmm. um, are you as impressed with it as I think we all are I mean when when in the 90s when you saw Peter Bagg and Spiegelman and Klaus come along um, is there a way to sort of sum up like what you saw is that sort of built up in steam? Or? Well, you know, it had happened, well you have to remember it had happened before with the underground comics in the 1960s and I, you know, part of the perspective here is uh, well, when you're looking at these things in the 70s and the 80s is that you had the feeling that this thing had already born, been born and died and you know, it's, it's like, I mean, I, I was maybe, I guess, the time like in the late late seventies, early eighties, I was. Uh, I'm, I mean, there was even before there was a uh, before this uh, boom that uh, you're talking about. There was like an attempt to uh, you know after the uh, underground faded away for to have a uh, you know to to recreate a kind of uh, comics that were not. From the uh, well, well, the the major New York uh, commercial publishers, and that had like never really gotten anywhere. So, I mean, I, 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 curiously, I mean, when I was reading comics in the 70s, uh, I, I I was reading you know I was reading Marvel comics mostly. It was basically the I wanted to read comics, and those were the only comics there were, you know. And so uh, it's. Uh, and there was uh, this this sort of, I mean, what I liked the best was uh, classic newspaper comics, and you know there was, and, and back then uh, you, you there there might be like one or two, one or two collections of the most famous comics that you know came out uh, between the uh, during the you know the sort of nostalgia boom in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. So there was like this real 
romance of uh, you know inaccessibility about it, and a lot of what you know my, my reading about that sort of thing was just to sort of to encourage that stuff to be reprinted, which is. Didn't Fantagraphics start early with Prince Prince Valiant? Wasn't that their well, first reprint? Well, that that came later. I mean, it's uh, started out. I mean, they did a couple of things that were like this. Uh, a couple of uh, really kind of odd things, like uh, I don't know. It was like this book. It, it's I'm trying to remember the name of it. It was something of Saturn or something of Jupiter. It was like the most god awful kind of uh, kind of science fiction pulp thing. It's like, uh, but I mean, it was just a couple of uh, you know false starts on that. I guess it really started with Fantagraphics when. Uh, it really got started when uh, the Hernandez brothers uh, sent Love and Rockets to you know, Gary Groth basically as a review copy, and he says, "Well, you know, can uh, you, you know, we'd like to publish you?" And that's I think became like the first thing was uh, the, the first substantial example of something that was that came out regularly that was something new that was not the uh, not part of the something that. That, that uh, comes after the uh, the underground era, mm -hmm. and so well, that's interesting that you because I remember when the first eight ball came out, mm -hmm. and I would get these comics. Uh, I thought of them as almost like zines. I mean, it was mm -hmm. much better produced than that, obviously, mm -hmm. but I I just thought mm -hmm. uh, I didn't see them as having this giant future. I didn't see anything like that coming. That's again why I start with Brian's piece and Alan Moore, for example. I quote. Mm -hmm saying that he loved Mao's, but he wanted he was interested in doing comics that had some impact on the mainstream so he did League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and I was just like <laughs> just I mean well but you can't I see at that time he was kind of right because Mao's came out it did not have a big impact within comics it had a big impact on readers you mean he did Watchmen Watchmen after that came. The, that no, came. That Watchmen was in in the eighties. It was republished the same year. But he had seen, he had seen uh, mm -hmm. Miles come out. He felt he wanted to do something that had real impact in the mainstream of comics. The, as you said the, in, in the introduction, the, the broad sweep of comics. It's so depressing because it's like he's stuck in this scene. You know, like he still wants to do something for this very weird, narrow audience. Well, that's what actually one of the things that interests me most about it, and that's why I talk, quoted him and quoted and ran Brian's piece because everything Brian said for that time was right on, and it actually has a great lot of uh, observations about the books he's talking about and superheroes. But this definition of the mainstream, what it is, it became completely different because now Chris Ware, if he gets published in the New Yorker, Chris is seen by 700,000 readers. And yet, it's outsells, the, and, and that magazine outsells any superhero book. I know, but nobody's. Yeah, but the comics have had a great history of being popular as long as people don't have to pay for them. You know, mm -hmm. like they've been in newspapers, and then people would get them at head shops when they'd go to buy their bong. They'd see, you know, cheap comic, and it's you know, nobody. Come on, nobody really cares. I feel like people care about a handful of cartoonists. I mean, you talk about like a revolution, all this stuff. I feel like. There's like a handful of cartoonists that people are really interested in that mm -hmm. are actively working, you mm -hmm. know, who have really big audiences. But I still think it's <laughs> a pretty weird form to work in because, you know, think about it like, sorry, like people mm -hmm. who read, 100,000 people buy Jimmy Corrigan, 
you know, and they love it. Let's say all of them love it. It's a particular kind of medium. It's not for everybody. So you could read that and be like, that was awesome. And decide, like, I don't really want to read another one. Not even decide. It's just not going to cross your mind until five years later and Black Hole comes out. And everyone's talking about Black Hole. You know? But, but it's, uh, sorry. You're, you're kind of talking about that. That's very true of most novelists today. There are more novelists, but there are, um, when you think of how many novelists there are and the ones that people really care about, you know, I'm talking about contemporaries. I guess not I just the, feel like, you know, like Kim Deitch can do a book and it can come out from Pantheon. And because it's not easy for critics to, like, figure it out in a really easy, accessible way or for readers to figure it out super easy, it's just going to, it would have made no difference if that book came out from Fantagraphics in 1980 or by Pantheon in 2002 or 2006 with his last book. What do you think the sales of his, I bought his new book yesterday. I'll bet you they'll be the same, maybe better from Pantheon, because a mainstream book publisher like Pantheon, they push you for a month, and then they move on. You well, know? I, I think it's interesting that Dan Klaus, when he was having his books published you know, regularly by Pantheon, uh, decided to go to uh, Drawn and Quarterly to publish his, his latest book. I mean, guess, uh, when, well, well, I think I, I think what it is with things, there's a couple things. Well, I think what it is with the uh, with, with a regular uh, New York publisher, as far as a uh, as far as a uh, as, as comics is, you know, they'll put it out, and you know, if it's it'll it'll be out there, it'll be out there for uh, it'll be out there for a while, and then you know, it's it's basically. Uh, it's basically backlist, and they're not going to follow up with it. Well, whereas a dedicated publisher like uh, Drawn and Quarterly will keep it along, will keep it in print. And keep it yeah, but I mean, I bring up this stuff mainly just because you know it, mm -hmm. it's the idea that the people's perception of comics has changed that much. I don't feel like it is. I feel like I don't think so. You know, I feel like most people who like mm -hmm. I think people in literary circles sort of resent it mm -hmm. because a book like Blankets gets a lot of attention, and then they're mm -hmm. like, "Oh, what's this book?" People are saying it's a piece of literature and they read it and it's a piece of shit right and so then they go oh okay well then the next book you know uh what's the the, the stereos polyps book comes out and everyone's like oh i heard this is amazing it's gonna be an amazing book and they read it and it's like oh another kind of piece of shit you know and so then it's like this fucking form is retarded you know excuse me but I like the stereos polyp. I want to point out. I want to point out. But I'm just saying, yeah. it's like if I was a reader right. and not a cartoonist, yeah. and I'd been reading in the New Yorker and like, ooh, you know, comics or reading, you know, Harper's sure. or whatever. It's like, yeah, sure. There's a couple interesting things. Uh, yeah. Robert Crumb doing Genesis, but like right. my that family at the bookstore I, I'm, I work at work, you know, I, I own with this with my friend David Kramer. Um, he's not a big comics guy. So last year he said, "What was the big comic?" Like what's the great what's the great comic that came out last year? New comic, and I said uh, I guess Crumb's book, and he's like yeah, but you know it's this weird adaptation thing. Like what what else? You know, and I was like uh, Stereo's Polyp, everyone loves that. And he's like nah, it sucks. Like what's a good one? Like between you and me, stop talking to like you know someone's mother. And I couldn't come up with one. I couldn't come up with one book. It's like, you know, I said Brinkman's, you know, multi-force collection that Nadell released. But that's this, a collection. This is what irritates me, though, is that people want something new. And they want to know, what's the new book? Not what, what the good book well, is. Well, no, but what's and exciting can, about what's going on but if now? This person had, if this person hadn't read anything by Jaime or Gilbert uh -huh. Hernandez, then, then you would shove that in their hands. Not something that just came out last year. 
You know, what like, what like, he's curious about when he asks me is not trying to test me. He just wants to know what's exciting in comics right now. Well, yeah. the way he, I, I could say Little Orphan Annie, but it's from 1924. Well, no, that's the answer, though. I that know is it is a, exciting. That's but he's asking about now. What's but exciting? If you want now? to hand somebody a great book, you you could hand them Hemingway, and it comes from 1925. That's true. But if uh, if I ask like a a young writer, you know, who's like uh, works at McSweeney's. What's a great book that came out last year? And he says, uh, well, they reissued Hemingway. I'd be like, what, you can't recommend one book? <laughs> yeah. Why would he? You know, I'm just saying it was interesting yeah. to me because I don't think like that because I'm well, deep in also, this crazy world of you're comics. You're also creating that situation completely. Um, look, I'm talking about not just us, but, you know, like, um, I agree with you. There are books that come out that I don't like. Like, I. Uh, what's his name? The guy who did Stitches, David Small. Yeah. Now he's exactly what you're talking about, about a guy who the, who critics who don't read comics think, oh, it looks like this like little art film, I think is what they thought. Um, like sort of, it, it's like reading, um, uh, I always hate this cliche, but in his case it was true. It's all set up like storyboards and um, the, the characters, the, the uh, how they were drawn was in this idiosyncratic style. And it, it was sort of, sort of this real life story about how hard it was to be a teenager for him because he, I guess, had a cancerous polyp or something that had to be removed. But it, there's not that much story there. What are you talking about? What book? And this guy won. Stitches. I think he won or, or got nominated for the National Book Award. Mm -hmm. And um, it's funny, right? Because like 10 years, 15 years ago, when like I Never Liked You came out, Chester Brown's book, like that is the, you know, adolescent like memoir type book you know and it came out how many copies do you think they even printed dnq two thousand six, six. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's going to get reached you know? but it's, it's but a great book it is it's the best it's the but you would book. give somebody a copy of catcher in the rye so what if it came out oh no no, 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 no i know i just I think know. it's yeah. i just think it's interesting you know what i mean yeah. i just think it's interesting can i yeah, just interrupt real quickly and say that um if anyone hasn't read chester brown's the little man they have paperbacks here for six dollars on sale Little Man and Other Stories. It's a great book. It's did they, murder. Did they buy them from you? No, but they're back there on the they're they're on that uh, discount table. They'll be bringing it out later. Everybody should snap this up if you don't own it. It is a great book. Just it is. Play but but now there is now you can look at twenty years of, of uh, back catalog stuff. If somebody says, "What should I read that's good?" You don't have to get, like your friends ask, "What's the what's the new thing?" Like why why last year? What did he like so much about two thousand and nine? He's so in love with it. <laughs> Whatever. You're, you're flipping it and turning it into a different conversation. The point is, it's yeah, interesting. We're just talking about criticism. Comics, it's interesting that criticism, yeah. stay on focus, like, stay okay. on topic. It's like well, comics are getting a lot of attention, right? Like critics are writing a lot you, about you comics. You said the whole thesis of my, my anthology was like, oh, what literary revolution? I'm saying there is one. So that's all. It I'm is like, interesting because looking at that list, I was like, oh, Rick Moody yeah. wrote about our comics. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, I think there is a problem that, uh, you know, there is a. Uh, that these, you know, the big statement books like uh, Jimmy Corrigan or Mao's uh, seem to be, you know, few and far between. I mean, just sure. basically because uh, the, uh, because how long it takes to draw a comic book. And I mean, it's, it's uh, and I mean, I think there, there seems to me there, there's a uh, sort of a life cycle with cartoonists in, in that, you know, when they're really young, you know, they're, they're in this medium where it doesn't have a lot of rewards, but you know, you're young and you you can uh, you can withstand a certain amount of po of uh, poverty and you can 
do a lot of work and then you get guys into their 40s, 30s, late 30s and 40s and you know, you just, uh, hey. <laughs> late 30s and 40s. You slow down. Yeah. <laughs> get discouraged. You know, well, no, I mean, just, you, you just don't have that, uh, the, the, you know, appetite for work. I mean, like, like, like the big thing for me, uh, the example to me, I think it looks at is like Chester Brown, you know, started this project where he was going to adapt like all four gospels into comics. And he did like, he went through one and got like halfway through a second. Right. And I guess he, I, I, I'm just guessing is, is that he decided, you know, he doesn't have enough life to, uh, to dedicate to this, you know. Um, this this is a little hard to articulate. I'm glad the conversation went further before I stepped in because I didn't realize that Sammy also thought that most hyped lit comics actually aren't any good and that's certainly a respectable opinion. I thought he was speaking more from the artist, editor, producer perspective that there were certain superstars that got a lot of attention and then you know maybe Kramer's Ergo does not sell as many copies as Blankets but he um, but the, and what, what I'm getting at though is that comics people kind of just like comics in like I, I'm sure you could convince me that Asterius Polyp was miserable in certain respects, and I did hate the ending. I mean, but it's okay. Anything I like, I enjoyed the experience of it. Um, Prince Valiant, like, why Gary Groth, for example, liked Prince Valiant enough to want to reprint it, it seems inexplicable to me it beyond the notion to. that people into comics just like they really like comics. True. Gary Groth doesn't totally have to like true. it to publish it. He's yeah. it's an important strip, and there yeah. are people that want to see it in print, yeah. and that's why it's in print. Yeah, but it's, I'm not a fan that's either. Not true Does anyone? Anyway, because yeah. comic fans are like so every kind of yeah. fan they're, they're so narrow in yeah. their thing. You, you, you know, some are. You don't think that certain works, maybe a serious polyp is a good example, get enjoyed and praised by comics people just because they're comics. It's like, it's kind of interesting. It's, it's, it's something that's a little different in this world that we're stuck in. Turning it off. It looks a little different. Uh, th that comics fans love all, all the things they love has always seemed inexplicable to me beyond that we really like comics. This goes back to yeah. how you were saying before that before you can pick up a book and know if you like it, you have to know... No, like, before know I'm it. going to choose to buy it. Okay. So, I mean, I don't know. Because now we're talking about something that like I don't have a sense of. I don't like making these weird sort of blanket statements about whole groups of people like that. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if all, pe all people who... If comic fans are like that. I know that they are narrow in their thinking. You know, and super reactionary. Like, as we see, like, Jimmy Corrigan comes out. Everybody loves it. Five years goes by. Everyone in that same world sort of resents Chris Ware and say they're bored with him, you know. And then you have like guys like Benjamin Mara coming out with like doing like, you know, uh, Thunderdome style indie comics and like and Johnny Ryan what Johnny does right. And everyone's because it's a reaction. To, it's like it's because it's such a narrow, weird little scene. Yeah, you get these weird things happening that probably no one else notices outside yeah. of that weird world. You know, Chris Ware is like seems to be going in and out of favor. Yeah. But I don't have a sense of like, I can't speak for like yeah. a Marvel comics yeah. reader because I have no idea about that work really. Yeah, I, I, maybe I'm, I'm just a really weird outlier, but I do think there is a, an audience that maybe no more than 10,000 people in the United States who are going to love 
Johnny Ryan's prison pit, oh, who are yeah. going to love Jimmy Corrigan. His, his name's Charles Hatfield, yeah. and his name is Rob Clown. <laughs> yeah, and who are going to love... Two comic critics who love everything. You know, Iron Man. And, and, and Paul and, Gravett in yeah. England. He loves everything. Yeah, I, I, I've... Maybe I've met more of these people and assume there's more of them than there are, but I, I think comics fandom is full of people who have tastes that are wide within the comics world in a way that's inexplicable, uh, inexplicable beyond that. They love comics. Yeah, yeah, they can yeah. read the new Iron Man. They can read Prison Pit. They can read Corrigan. They can even read Kramer's Ergo and then go, wow, it's comics. I love it. I'm interested in it. I think there's a couple critics. Like I can yeah. think of it as far as writers of comics. There are some people like that, like yeah. the, two I, the three I mentioned. Yeah. You know, they but sort of love everything. Yeah. Or like the guys who run Top Shelf. Yeah. They love every comic. Yeah. But what you're saying about people who just love comics, isn't that true about most uh, Do you have to just love music to have jazz, punk, rock, and classical in your house? Do you have to true? Well, not every. Well, I'm not saying love. Yeah, I I get what you're saying. I'm not saying love every. I'm just saying love such a range that it seems. Because you know why they love the medium. It's like, you know how I was saying before, like people could read Jimmy Corrigan, love it, and then have no desire to read another comic. There's like the opposite, which is probably like me or Joe. At a certain point, where it was like comics, like just loving it as yeah. a medium, and, and then turning so on it though, because yeah. oh, I'd rather see a good film than read a bad comic. Yeah, you know. And I was gonna say, I, we Would keep getting. Really? I'd rather see a good film than read a bad comic. Oh, of course. Okay. Comparing, I said bad comparing I'd rather read a good apple with a fresh orange. I mean, what's I like that? we're not we're not uh, on the topic of criticism. We keep getting off it. I think, but oh. <laughs> but I was gonna say something. Right. When it comes to criticism, like I, I'd rather. I was gonna say I, I tend to I read things that I like. I want to read about things I already like and. Uh, reviews of like, you know, after seeing all Buster Keaton's films, I'd be very interested in reading why someone picks one or two and describes it as their favorite. Um, that's all. I don't know off topic. I don't even know what I'm saying. <laughs> well, we. <laughs> I won't let you have the mic anymore, Joe. You're not allowed to have the mic. Um, wait, we were talking we're, we're the, the validity of criticism. Well, reviews? that's what I started on. Um, but the, well, you I mean, too. Let me ask you, Joe. Like you're, you, you're a cartoonist. You think a lot about comics, right? Kind of. Yeah. You think a lot about making comics. You were making. I mean, you've been making comics probably consistently in your own way for the last what since maybe 25 years. Yeah. 20. So, I mean, do you feel that your work? I mean, do you feel? Do you look at reviews of your own work? I, no, I, I don't. If they come, if I come across, I'm a very tough. I feel like any artist, any artist has to be very tough-skinned and not really care. And if you're looking to the reviews for validation, you're pretty insecure, and it's it's just not. It doesn't bode well for you as an artist. Um, whenever, whenever things of like artists I admire, like Woody Allen or somebody, I don't imagine Woody Allen running around anxiously reading all his reviews. I mean, he doesn't even rewatch his old films, you know? So it's like, I kind of feel like the artist's role is not to really get caught up in that. And I remember Harvey Picar and uh, Spiegelman getting into a debate over Mouse, and uh, it, was all, it was always printed in the comics journal, and I was like, I was like, man, Picard's dragging Spiegelman down with this debate. Like, like Spiegelman should just be working, and Picard's got nothing better to do or something. And, and I, I was like, I, I just felt the artist and the critic should kind of stay separate and, you know, like teachers. And, you know, it's just, it's just there's so, such different things, you know? Well, but you're, you're talking about criticism as if it's just a review, like good or bad, rather than... Right, I am. Um, you know, I mean, I put... And then know, rather than an analysis, well, which what, does fascinate me. Like well, but that's why I David wanted the, like, the interview with Dan and, and, and Sammy. 
in the book because it's a conversation, but there's critical thinking going on. That's what I was most well, interested. conversations and interviews always. It's like well, reading a play. I really when find I talk easy. about criticism too, it means more than just two stars, three stars. Buy this, don't buy this. I think he's, he reads criticism because if he reads all those interviews in the journal, a lot of that stuff is the same sort of thing. It is, but it uh, a lot of the same way of thinking. But there are, there are always people I already know. I want to read what Jaime has to say. Like the, I read the Mazzucchelli, uh Dash Shaw interview, and I found myself dismissing Dash Shaw and just skipping over his lines and just reading what Mazzucchelli <laughs> said. You know, because I was like, I'm like, I don't have time for this. You know, I don't agree with this guy. His tastes are all over the place. Been for three days. You know, I don't. I just I don't have time. <laughs> okay. But well, we and also just uh, quickly. I mean, you can't really take much. Uh, you know, you can't put too much weight into a positive review when the next review by the same writer is like praising the new Avengers comic just as much as he loved your last well, book. I, I think the number one reason that artists really can't, uh, number one reason that artists can't pay a lot of uh, attention to critics is they change their minds. Who does? Critics. Critics change their minds? Yes. Critics change the minds of the artists? Critics change their minds about things. Yeah. <laughs> so artists. Yeah. I change my mind on things all the time. Well, what he's saying is you can't look at the review as a standard because then the critic comes back and says, um, right. maybe I was wrong. Like Bob's pieces in the in the book are all about comics and 911, and you entitled the the coda to it when you look back, make me a liar, because you changed your mind about. Well, I didn't change my mind. I didn't think I was. Uh, I didn't think there was going to be any, any sort of major work that you know came out on that subject. Then. Uh, I, then Spiegelman came out with uh, In the Shadow of No Towers, which I, I was impressed with. So that's that's what that was about. Mm -hmm. That wasn't really about changing my mind about the value of the other ones that came out. So, okay. Um, I'm going to uh, get some questions um, uh, from the audience, but did anybody want to add anything else? Any final thoughts about Joe? Something like, um, we, we, you mentioned Crumb's Bible, Genesis book, and uh, that was a book that I gravitated towards because I love Crumb to death, and I bought it immediately, read it, and I hated the read. And even though I love Crumb's art, because I, to read, I hated to read because I hated the Bible. I, it's, I just hate the Bible, and and I I I didn't like the read. No, he wasn't he wasn't making it funny. He he wasn't giving it his the crumb touch really. Um, he wasn't writing. No, no, not as a writer. It was just he was illustrating it basically too too literally and word for word. There was too much. It wasn't what comics smart stuff going on in that book. No critic has actually written about that book. But yeah, to me, it wasn't what makes comics great. The the narration where he would say like, "And Lot said to his son," and then you would read Lot's word balloon. That kind of stuff is like the antithesis of what good comics are to me. And even though the art was beautiful, I had to like sell the book after I read it because I didn't want to keep it. You know, Jaime and Jaime talks about like growing up. Uh, growing up as a kid, he never read the the word balloons ever. That's his he problem. <laughs> no, it's it's like what you're saying. Okay. Oh, he just liked the art. Yeah. Yeah. He but just like reading it, reading the images. But to me, the read is more important than the images, and and that's this is what makes it hard when you judge things visually. Oh, I see. Because like something like I was dismissive of Jeffrey Brown at first because his lettering is terrible, and uh, enough people kept urging me to read it that I did read it, and then I fell in love with all his stuff, and you know, so I buy everything by Jeffrey Brown. Somebody, but like James Kochalka. You know, I got on board a little too quickly, and then I started bailing, and you know, lost interest. And in, uh, I only like his autobiography. Another, another example, if I can defend uh, what I said change. about wanting to. With comics, you look at it, and you're going to have this reaction. And lots of comics that 
when I later trouble myself to read them, I learn to love, have a look that is off-putting to me. And that's another place where criticism can tell me, you know, you looked at this and you didn't like the way it looked, but it's worth it. Fight, fight through your visceral dislike of the the way this person draws and read it and you'll love it. And that's happened to me numerous times. Yeah, well, I, Numerous I, times. Wow. Because it, it is about reading as well. There is a story involved and there are artists, writer artists, who I go, well, I don't love their cartooning, but I do love the story they're yeah, telling. Yeah, but the, and it's the way they draw is like the way they write. You know, like the way they talk. It's like the way someone talks. Yeah. I'm sure that's true on some what do you mean? large it's, level, but I can tell you that there are comic books that I have read and enjoyed where I've got, I don't, I wouldn't spend my time looking at the way this guy draws. I'm not in love with the amazing, way That's amazing because there's like there's books that like I've tried to read yeah. that I've heard are good, but it's like if I can't get past the way someone draws, it's like picking up, you know. What's an example of a fiction writer or like in comics? Uh, like, uh, you know, oh man, there's so many. I don't know who to offend. Uh, I mean, it took me it took me like two weeks to get through uh, the belly button book. What's it called? Uh, the Dash's book. The bottomless belly button. You know, like because the way he draws. And like the some of the formal things, it was just like so hard to get through it. But I felt like I had to, and I I enjoyed it in parts or whatever. But I mean, I, I find that so interesting that you could read a book that you didn't like the art in. That's like going to an art gallery. I feel like going to a museum and forcing yeah. yourself like through. You know, by the end of it, you're not hating the art anymore. But it's the kind of thing where you pick it up and thumb through it, and like I. I'm not invited into this world. I don't feel like I want to go into this world. Like but it's not for you. I can be talked into it, and I'll find that it is more for me than I thought when I spent five minutes flipping through it. Right? How do you? There are any number of books where the art is not interesting, but the story is, or the story is not that interesting, and the art is stylistically interesting, and they don't always work together. Um, and one of the things I thought was most interesting about this whole last 10 years is that the writing has finally come to the attention of a lot of people uh, as, and as much as the art. So I, th I think I don't have to love what it looks like um, or sometimes I love what it looks like and I can't stand the word. Like Frank Miller. I th I I have, there's can you, a can lot. You give me, hold on, sorry. Can you just give me an example of something that's well written that you don't like the drawing so much? Like that you think is well written. Not okay writing, but like good writing. With knots, with art you don't like. That would happen all the time with Harvey Picard. Unless Crum or somebody like uh, Drew Friedman is, I mean, sorry to insult every other artist he's ever worked with, but I find him fascinating when it's Crum or Friedman or there's one other artist I really like. And then I find Picard sometimes unreadable when it's a really bad artist. So and you said it's unreadable. Yeah, if the art alone. I mean, but I, I can pick that same example. That is exactly what you're looking for. Like Picard and Gary Dumb. Gary Dumb stuff is hideous. <laughs> but I can read a Picard and Dumb book, and in the end, be glad I read it and okay. enjoyed it. And I bailed on Picard entirely. I just stopped reading everything uh, like five years ago, just because the bad art just wore me down. 
and I just stopped. And then and then the ads, like Dark Horse started publishing it, and there's house ads in the books. And to me, that was like the end of it. If he had just kept publishing, self-publishing American Splendor as a magazine, I would have continued buying it because I had every single issue from the first to like number 24. And then he went to Dark Horse, and I'm like, he doesn't even have pride in how the book looks that he's willing to let like a shitty superhero ad appear on the inside back cover. And you know, so then I just like I lost all respect. But um, but I want to ask you the two of you on the end real quickly. What do you think of Roy Crane's Captain Easy book that just came out, and would you read it? Because I know these guys would love it, and I already do, probably, right? I have not read Fanographics, but I love Roy Crane. I already have tons of Roy Crane at home. And Brian, what's your reaction about Captain Easy? never been part of my life yet, but I expect he will be in the future. I do enjoy looking at his cartooning. Okay, because Roy Crane, Roy Crane, who did Buzz Sawyer and Captain Easy, he had just had a new book out of Captain Easy Sundays, and I have a hard time trying to turn people onto this. Um, why? I don't know why, because people just have an aversion, because they want something new. They want the new Dan Klaus book. The problem with that book is the cover they put on it. It's such a great book. It's the anti-cover. Anyway. Anti All right, well, let me... Um, and while I struggle to think of a book that is really terribly drawn that I can read, um, I don't know. I always feel that uh, Doonesbury, for example, is a really flat, dull-looking comic that I like to read, because he's a funny joke writer. And so there are, there are cartoonists like that. I mean, I honestly think he, he had BD lose his legs so he had less to draw. I truly believe that, but anyway. Okay. Um, let's, uh, anybody have any questions? <laughs> Poor people. Poor people. We're so sorry. I think it's always interesting seeing the artists like they discuss what probably most think what's written is for actually the reader, right? The audience, because for us to help decide. Um, what, where we should go, sometimes, uh, you know, there's so much being offered uh, to also uh, reframe enjoyment, not necessarily for deeper context, and I appreciate criticism for that, to sort of you know, put it in context. And I guess with, this is for one, one for, for, for critics, you know, what, do you sort of um, think about things like that, and how to, I guess, deepen the experience of the read? And then two, for the artists, you think, wow, that was a really interesting point about my life I never thought about, or, or that person's really way off about, about what I was trying to do with my work. So I guess I was kind of curious what that experience is like for Okay. You guys want to start down there? I was just going to say, I tend to think the critics and reviewers are kind of for the readers more than the artists, kind of the way like funerals are for the living and not the dead person. But um, that's all. Um. It's interesting because you know you'll do a piece and then you'll read someone's take on it and their reading of it will be so different, you know. And it it tells in a way it's like you feel embarrassed for them because you're like, my God, they got some like weird issues, like weird guilt things or whatever, you know, like because they'll mention things that you're totally not thinking about and you're like, something's on this guy's mind or whatever, you know. But um, uh, so yeah, it has happened. And also, like when I the last Kramer's Ergot book was a really big book, and it was an expensive book. So in a weird way, it was this weird, like litmus test or something. Like what kind of like it's like it, it was almost like it told me the way I would read stuff about that book. It told me a lot about how people engage with stuff like do they can they engage one-on-one -on -one with it directly or is it or when they engage with a piece of work if they're thinking of how others are appreciating it or who's the uh, who they're thinking about who the audience is for it you know um 
And there's certain cartoonists who seem to always kind of do that, like uh, Paper Rad, which I guess are more than just people who do comics, the art collective, you know? It's like some people would look at that work and be like, who's this for? Like, you know, hipsters and like, you know, kids who are like going to raves and think they're too cool to read Garfield, so they're going to read a weird Xeroxed copy of Garfield, you know? And I think that's really different than someone else who looks at it and is like, wow, this is really beautiful. The color is gorgeous. And look at this funny Garfield joke, you know? Um, but yeah, does that sort of answer what you were, yeah. your question? Yeah. I guess, yeah. I mean, I have a respect for it because I, for the, I've got a blog, we have a store blog, and so when I love a book, like Walt Holcomb did this book called uh, Things Just Get Away From You, right? You know that book, The Collection? <laughs> okay, well, they did this collection, it's a book that I really love, and not many people read it, and I wanted to tell people about the book, so to sit down for like three, four hours, and to write critically about it, and what's great about it, and to really define that, like... That's something that I get excited to do. The same way I get excited to, to draw, it's like you're excited to talk about an artist you like, you know? So I think, uh, I think it's interesting to me because then there's like people like Noah Berdlaski who works for the Comics Journal. Every review is super negative. He's like totally, he's like one of these guys who goes to a party and feels like he's got the worst haircut. You know, he's super wound up that like he's got the worst haircut and everybody knows it and he can't deal with it. So like every review of everything is never about actually talking about the work. Would you agree? Yeah, for the record, Noah referred to this book. Uh, the title alone is contemptible. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <But> anyway. Now that we live in this wonderful era of Google, where just say, for instance, so, okay, now we've got an anthologized book of comic criticism, and this could lead anybody in any number of directions. Say, for instance, now, um, somebody's going to do a term paper on, I don't know, the difference between neat stuff and hate, just to throw something out there we're probably all aware of. Uh, and they Google in Peter Bagging. Everybody gets the same information. And so all of a sudden, the context that Peter Bagg's work goes into is not only um, because there are what, only 24 issues of the say, something like that, but there are, I don't know, 400 reviews of it. And people are going to be looking at this before they get a chance to maybe see even five issues of it. Does the import of the critic in terms of establishing some sort of context for that piece of work get, is more weight attached to it? Or do you even care? I, I think it's almost decimated. I mean, it's very tough to be a critic these days. The newspapers fire them. Uh, bloggers uh, are more on it than a lot of critics. I mean, for if you are into Pete Bag, um, there are people who, you know, you're, uh, are putting up a website on their Pete Bag page. We can fill you completely up with their point of view of it. Pete himself uh, writes quite a bit. And um, yeah, there's a lot of reviews, and the whole uh, the whole um, job of the critic. Uh, you, you, as yeah, I said, I'm, 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 I'
I would say everybody hits the same information kind of the same way because they're just telling people. Right. That. His point right. is that like the, the critical canon then becomes the top ten Google searches. Yeah. And it doesn't oh, matter right. like what new criticism is being produced. It's well, like if, whatever those first ten things when you say, Oh, what's up with Peter Bag? That's gonna everybody yeah. gets it whether they're yeah. Anchorage, Alaska or Mumbai. Yeah, that's probably happening. Yes. I, and I was saying earlier that as as a consumer of art, uh, that I I find that that conversation exists is useful. I don't. I like to not believe, uh, uh, despite what Sammy said, that it's warping how I react to the work when I do trouble myself to read it. But it absolutely shapes whether I'm going to take the time to go. I'm now going to read this book. I, I'm going to want to think I understand why I'm doing it before I do it. And that's just how I economize the time in my life. And it may, I may lose out on a lot that way. Uh, and that's, I'm sure there's lots of people like me and that is what you said is gonna happen. Right, and I just want to like, just, bad. just on the simple fact of now, if anybody is doing any kind of research on the John Coltrane Quartet, as it was in 1962, they type that in, they get 10 things. 10 reviews from 10 magazines that managed to survive. And that becomes as much a part of the canon when anybody writes liner notes for the record. Yeah, but what's this for? This is for somebody else's another yet another article or thesis paper. So what's the big deal? Well, actually, no, like, when you uh, when you put something into uh, when no? you put, put something into Google, you get 10 people trying to sell you the book. <laughs> but okay, but your point is that like the perception is homogenized then by these 10 articles because of the internet. I'm saying is it because just as for instance, if somebody who's the son of the library, 10 people can go to the library to get to go look into the same subject and come up with 10 totally different results. Google not so easy. All right. Yeah, stay off the internet. I'm get your question better than I first did. Um, I would say no because everybody is everybody is chiming in. Joe alone. There's seven reviews that can't agree on him from Amazon. Those are people who just posted on Amazon. Um, I have this section in the book called Re uh, Appraisals where I offer three pretty distinct opinions of Will, Will Eisner, who I would say before 2000 was pretty much just universally beloved. Um, not the, uh, Gary Groth wrote a famous essay uh, really going after Eisner and uh, uh, taking him apart. But um, there's three distinct point of views, uh, points of view on Eisner. Uh, Ditko, Steve Ditko, three more points of view come after that. Um, from Alan Moore, who uh, is a long interview on Ditko. Pete Bagg, who loathes Steve Ditko's work. He created Spider-Man and is just revered in superhero cir circles. And, and Pete called his essay, uh, Spider-Man Sucks. <laughs> and. Um, then third, Donald Phelps, who is a great critic, who really just does a, a great critical analysis of, of all the formal experimentation and stuff in Dicko. And, and my problem with putting this together at some point was always, I gotta be able to put together a book that people can't just Google at home. So no, I, I think the internet, um, is, if anything, has created a big argument and, and is part of the reason that people are being reappraised, like Will Elder. Um, Douglas Wolk wrote a great, uh, uh, piece, so probably the one I agree with most on Elder, that's, in, uh, excuse me, Will Eisner. Um, and uh, so I, I see so much more opinion because you could also argue that when the Comics Journal was so central that Sammy, Brian, and I, and maybe Joe, are all being shaped by writers like Bob and Gary and um, um, 
from us, uh, Carter Schultz, uh, his yeah, big writer back then. Comics, but yeah. He yeah, I mean, I mean, a number of writers, but where else was I going to read about comics except the Comics Journal? There's no internet. So now there's this uh, diverse opinion out there. And there's message boards, and there's so many people chiming in. Um, you know, movie people have a tough time, people who write about movies, because somebody like Harry Knowles can just start up a website, and suddenly nobody really cares what the New Yorker thinks about the new science fiction movie. Because those guys don't like But see, that's, that's the thing that's like... Uh, critics always love talking about like the death of criticism, you know. And it seems like good writing is good writing. It doesn't matter if it's uh, it's good if it's you know positive or negative. No, no, it's not the death of criticism. It's the giant expansion of it that right. you can't be the big fish in the small pond anymore. Well, I think you know one, one thing we find out about Amazon is how easy it is to ape the language of criticism. <laughs> yeah. True. Yeah. I once, um, <clears throat> back in the 90s when I had a comic book coming out, I would, I would, get, I would get letters in the mail delivered right to my house because my, my home address was in the book. Um, this is like from 91 to 2000. And, um, you know, somebody once told me like, well, one letter basically kind of equals, I think it was 100 fans maybe, because like only one out of 100 will bother to write. And, um, and the same holds true for like, Somebody posting a review on Amazon, you know, it's it's not it's 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 the rare person that can be bothered to do it, kind of and it's a particular kind of person too. And if you ever look on YouTube and you read the idiotic statements under each video, it's murder. <laughs> and uh, and these things, you can't give too much uh, credence to these attentions. The, the, these anybody on the internet. Um, say, yeah. But um, yeah. but like you were saying, if somebody was writing about Peter Bag, they they should they should read do their work first. They should read the what they're going to talk about first and then go on the internet if they're going to at all. But it's, it's really doing things backwards and idiotically kind of to, you know, read all the reviews first and then read the stuff you're about to write your thesis on. Um, but maybe, maybe it's a good way to explore what you're going to write the thesis on. But if you were thinking about watching Lost and you haven't watched it at all, would you start reading all these reviews about it? I think you would probably ask your friends, is it worth watching? Um, is it worth all the time? And then they might, if it's me, I'd say no, go watch The Wire. But, you know, it's, I, th I still think word of mouth is like probably the most important form of criticism because uh, it's, because your friends can, you know, they won't spoil it for you and it, these are the people whose opinions you really value. Um, not, <clears throat> but, um, but that's not talking about the form. The form of what? Form of criticism? The form of criticism. Yeah, well, good criticism is rare, you know, really rare. And, and like you were saying, you, 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 you can't, it looks like bad criticism because it's just words on paper or on the screen. And it's really hard to find good writing. And you tend to, you got to find the names you like and then you got to seek out their work, the authors that you appreciate. Um, and this, you know, takes work. It takes work and time. Uh, okay, right up here. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, building on the good criticism, bad criticism. Uh, I, I do want to hear why uh, Noah called, uh, called your book title uh, uh, contemptible. Well, it, but, but also, well he's, but, he's got a really bad haircut. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, that's right. But the, See, well, the, one, the one thing that I seriously wanted uh, to, to hear about was uh, the, the, word, the word best uh, in, your, in your title. I mean, to a certain extent, I imagine it's a you know it's a marketing term, but you know you uh, personally uh, haven't haven't heard that much uh, in the way of you know exactly what you know quali qualifies as best. Well, I uh, what he was talking about in his review is actually 
uh, a legitimate point that he turned kind of like into like this, uh, a legitimate critical point which he turned into this moral thing. Um, basically it's, uh, he was saying the problem with the title is that it says best American comics criticism. It could be the entire 20th century. It could be one year. And that by not saying specifically in the title what it was the best of, that it was misleading and it was sort of a cheap marketing ploy to cash in on all this. <laughs> all like, this that huge audience of people who want a collection of all the best comics criticism yes. ever well, in so a book that's 150. Yeah. Even, though, even though Noah could have pointed out to his readers, had he chosen to, that the whole thing is explained by the jacket copy on the back. Um, so that was his problem with it. And he, he uh, called it, he, he thought it was uh, contemptible. Um, as for me, what I wanted to do was cover this period from 2000 to 2008. And originally it was titled Best American Comics Criticism of the 21st Century. But I thought that sounded kind of hokey, like Buck Rogers of the 25th Century or something like that. And I didn't want it to sound comic booky, science fiction-y, that. So I took that off. And um, I just let the, the jacket copy kind of tell what the book is. As for me, what best is, I, when, I, when there are all these different series, like I mentioned earlier, best American sports writing, short stories, financial writing, they have all these different, Mahout Mifflin, I think, puts out a, a bunch of them, and, and there are other places. Um, I hope this will become a series. So I hope it will become an ongoing thing. Um, and uh, as for what I thought the best was, I was trying to cover this period, 2000 to 2008, so it's the best kind of critical thinking, not just reviews, not just historical essays, but to cover this big, wide-ranging period that, I, as I pointed out earlier, was sort of like uh, you have publishers investing in comics history, investing in comics biography, investing in new comics. You have a lot of money being spent by publishers to inform the public what comics is. So I. I chose what I thought was the best uh, critical thinking in those different areas, the best nonfiction journalism writing. For the most part, there's actually a little fiction in it, like uh, a selection from Seth's Wimbledon Green, which is about comics critics. So, um, you know, there are a number of different sections. If you want, like, the best in the appraisal section, um, they're the most insightful piece, those are the most insightful pieces about <coughs> Um, artists whose reputations are, I think, have, are changing rapidly, like Steve Ditko, who has, I think, become uh, more known to the public in a way than he ever has before, because mostly he's avoided it completely. And yet his work is sort of a, a defining part of the Watchmen. And so I had Alan Moore talking about what Ditko meant to him, and then Peter Bagg talking about Spider-Man. These are really insightful essays. I, it was my choice that Ditko for example, mattered in this period. And so what's the best writing on him? So I had to look around and find writers who I wanted to include in other sections just because they're great. I mean, just um, John Hodgman's piece on, on the impact of Jack Kirby now. Jack Kirby created the epic comic, right? Which falls in line with my, my literary um, motif for this. And he argues that Kirby has, uh, his epic comics had a big impact on Eric Schanauer's work and um, Brian Vaughn's Why the Last Man. And um, it's, 
you know, beyond, it was written for the New York Times as a review, beyond the consumer uh, aspect of it, it's a great piece of writing. So, you know, it was my own judgment um, w within this idea that these literary comics have taken hold in the public imagination and what that's meant in the, in the business of publishing and in, as art. So uh, best equals well-written and insightful? For that section, um, in the opening section, it sets a historical. Um, I use Bob's piece and Brian's piece and Paul Gravett's piece, who I guess likes everything. Uh, <laughs> um, I use those pieces to kind of set up what this era was about, and Bob specifically because he's really the only person I, I read who is really dealing with 911 in comics in a really intelligent way as. You know, it's, it's a great, I, I thought it was a great example of what he does. Um, so I didn't have one standard for best because all the, all the different cat sections of the book change. Um, best interviews, I, I like three, three that Gary did because Gary step by step unpacks uh, an artist's work with them like nobody else. And in, um, uh, that was one example. You know, or Daryl Epps' uh, interview with Chester Brown. Nobody's talked to Chester like that before that I've ever come across. So in those, it's about expansive opening these artists up. So it's a different standard for each section. Um, we should start. We have less than a half hour left. So let me just ask if there's one more question, and then we can start signing books. Or really, anybody else? Because I know if I have Brian yawning, it's time to stop. It's <laughs> Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you all for coming up. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Ashling and Arlo. You can check them out at MySpace or Facebook or at the iTunes Music Store. Thank you for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.